Hi everyone, I'm Risa Milne. I am a recovered alcoholic. My, my sobriety date is March 3rd, 2004, and as was said, my home group is the primary purpose group of Webster, New York. We are a Zoom meeting. We meet at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, Eastern. Uh, it's a really awesome group. We uh, study the big book line by line. Um, we're real big book geeks there, like just love studying the book. We love getting into it. We love the history. We're just, we're real nerds, real nerds. Anyway, um, I was, uh, I wasn't nervous until maybe about four minutes ago. <laughs> and, um, you know, before we came into the meeting, um, I, I meditated and I prayed and I asked God to speak through me. So, um, I haven't sat around all day long thinking about what I'm going to say. I uh, asked God just to talk through me, and, and so I'm hoping that's going to be what happens. Um, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. I will tell you, though, that um, my mom was in the hospital uh, the weekend of Christmas. Uh, a few days right before Christmas, she ended up in the hospital. and. You know, I went out, I went to go see her and be with her and, and support her and, and be, you know, um, I'm, I'm the only daughter, I'm the only family that she still has. So, so I sat with her at her bed and, and we were talking and, you know, um, she had asked me um, when I had started drinking. My mom doesn't fully know my alcohol story. Um, when I started really, really drinking, she had left the state of New York and she was living in Connecticut, so she didn't really see the progression of my illness. And, uh, and we were talking about a time when I was younger, I was 13 and uh, I'm Jewish and I had a bat mitzvah and uh, I was telling her how I was watching these videos and how I look on the outside like I'm having fun, but I can see in my eyes, I can see on my face that I'm absolutely terrified to be there. You know, just absolutely uncomfortable in my own skin, absolutely miserable. And she looked at me and she said, were you drinking by then? And I was drinking by then, but I wasn't drinking there. Um, my my <clears throat> story was is that I was just, didn't feel like I fit in. And, and my mom didn't drink. Uh, she had a bottle of wine um, that she kept in the, in the uh, cupboard for special occasions. And one day after school, it was a really rough day. And I, I went home and I got into the wine and and all of a sudden I just felt right. You know, my, my shoulders just started to go down, my muscles started to relax, my my mouth started to water, my like I just felt like this oh, come over me. But I was like really scared of my mom and I wasn't I had not passed that line that the book book talks about where I needed a spiritual experience. Like I don't think I I had fully an allergy at that point. I was able to stop drinking after a sip or two just until I got that feeling. And so I wasn't really drinking at that time. And she said something to me, um, which I think a lot of parents think um, when, when it comes to us and, and getting sober is, I wish you would talk to me more about what was going on with you. Maybe I could have helped. And it's funny because um, you know, when I first came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I blamed everybody around me. I was a victim of circumstance. I thought that, you know, because people treated me wrong or people didn't listen to me or people didn't take care of me the right way or people didn't show up the way I wanted them to, that's what made me an alcoholic. And it was sitting next to my mom that moment when she said that, and I looked at my mom and I said, I don't think anything you could have done 
would have stopped what happened. I said, you probably could have done every single thing in the world, but I've learned that I have a soul sickness so deep within myself that nothing outside of myself can help me. And, um, you know, and, and I watched, because I, I think my mom, I, I've been sober now for 19 years, and um, I think my mom for a long time has kind of, you know, like taken that on her shoulders. Like, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous because of her. And I could see like just her like her demeanor change, and she just was like, the way we were talking and the honesty that, that was there was like I I finally gave her some peace. I finally gave her some some like I didn't cause this. And the reason I'm talking about it is because for a really long time I thought alcoholism was causal. You know, I, I thought you know if if you have a bad childhood you're going to become an alcoholic. You know or or if you don't have the right money, or if you don't have the right resources. And, and as I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous for long enough, I've heard so many different stories. We're talking about it a little bit out in the, the foyer, um, about how great it's, it is that there's so many different people in AA because we get to hear all the different stuff. And um, you know, I, I know people who, who've grown up extremely wealthy. I've, I've known people who've grown up with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, excitement for life, you know, uh, that I've known people who've had amazing childhoods. I've, I've known people who've been horribly abused. I, there's so many of us in these rooms, but for some reason in my head when I came in, I thought like if I, if I didn't have a bad enough childhood, then I didn't fit in, you know, or vice versa, you know, well, I have a worse childhood than you. You're not really an alcoholic. Um, and it was just, it's crazy what, you know, we've, we think alcoholics, what, what alcoholism is, before we actually understand it. Um, and so, I don't know, that's, that's been on my mind a lot lately, and um, one of the things um, that I've realized when, in the last few years, um, I get some sponsees, some of my sponsees have been around the rooms for, for a few years and have just never worked the steps. Some of them have worked the steps, but they want to go through a different way. Some of them are just brand new babies to Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I get a lot of women that I work with, and one of the things that I ask the ones, especially the ones who've been around AA for a really long time, is what is alcoholism? What, you know, like, can you tell me what alcoholism is? And a lot of them look at me and they say, you're powerless over alcohol. And I say, well, what does that mean? And they're like, well, I can't drink. And I'm like, okay, but like, what does that mean to you? Like, what is, well, you know, uh, and they start saying things that they've heard in meetings, like, uh, you know, the drink, I take the drink, the drink takes me, and, but they can't really tell me what the disease of alcoholism is. And, uh, and it's crazy because in, for me, you know, we were also talking out there that, you know, like there's these people who are like just revved up with a lot of energy, and, uh, and when they find out that there's a solution here, they're just like zoom right in, you know? And uh, I was talking about how I was more of the Eeyore, like, I don't want to do it. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to do the God thing. I don't want to do the fourth step thing. I don't want to do the ninth step thing. I don't want to do any of it, you know? But then, you know, I sat down with a sponsor who took me through the book and took me line by line and taught me what alcoholism was. Because I didn't know if I was an alcoholic or not. I knew I was in a room where people were happier than me. I knew I was in a room where people were living better lives than me. But I didn't know if your solution would work for me because I didn't know if I had what you had. 
And so she took me through this book and she taught me what alcoholism was. And she taught me about the, the, the physical allergy that we suffer from. And she talked to me about the mental obsession. And she talked to me about underlying all of that, the spiritual malady. And she talked to me about what that alcoholism was. And, and me, who was this Eeyore type of person, um, you know, who just didn't want to do anything, once I was able to find myself in the big book and I knew that I had what you had, then I had the passion and the willingness to try and do what you did, you know? And so I'm going to talk a little bit about what alcoholism is um, because it just, it, it fascinates me. You know, alcohol, uh, there was this doctor, Dr. Silkworth, I'm sure a lot of people in this room know who he is. Um, he was a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous and he worked at a nationally known um, hospital, Towns Hospital in New York, and he worked with uh, uh, drug and alcoholics, drug addicts and alcoholics. And, and one of the things he noticed was that, you know, there was maybe out of a hundred people who would come in and they would do this treatment and they would do the, the belladonna treatment and they would do the hydrotherapy and they would do these treatments with them. He would notice that like 90 of them, 90% of them would go out and, and they would be able to either control their drinking or stop entirely. And, and they were successful and they went on to have these, these better lives. And then he noticed that after a while, like 10% of them kept coming back in, coming back in. And not only were they coming back in, but they were worse for the wear. You know, their lives had, had gotten lower and, and their drinking had gotten lower and their health had gotten worse. And, and he was noticing this. And, um, you know, the idea that alcoholism is a mental illness wasn't a new idea. But what the idea that he had that was new was that there was something wrong with our bodies. Up until that point, a lot of these places were really just trying to get you to like slow down, drink less. And so he was like, no, there's something wrong with the body of an alcoholic. There seems, there seems to be something wrong where even if they say they're going to go out there and control it, and they're going to have one or two. And I'll be honest, I never thought about one or two. I really always thought about like three or four. Um, <laughs> But um, he would go, they would go out and they, would, they wouldn't be able to stop. You know, they wouldn't be able to stop at, at two or, or one. Or, or they might say, you know, I'm going to go out drinking, but I'm going to make sure I'm at this event. You know, I'm going to make sure that, you know, I've, I've built up my company this big and I'm going to make sure that I'm there so that I, I you know, can, can pull this off. And, and they can't. They don't have the ability to stop. And so, you know, that's something that's pretty easy for us to understand, right? Like, at this point in my life, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it was pretty easy for me to understand, like, I can't put this in my body. Um, it's not safe for me to put this in my body, you know? What I couldn't understand is why I couldn't stop putting it in my body, you know? That was, that was the part that I had a really, really, really hard time with. And so there comes in, you know, and, and, and our book says, you know, these, uh, hold on, I can read it because if I read it, I'll actually get it right. Um, all right, so uh, it talks about on page 23, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. 
you know? If all my problem was was physical, then I could just put the plug in the jug and, and keep it moving and have a great life. I wouldn't need to sit in a 12-step program. I wouldn't have to grow spiritually. I wouldn't have to build up, you know, um, a spiritual relationship with my higher power. I, you know, I'm, I'm very... Um, introverted, I like being alone, I, I wouldn't have to be around a lot of people and get out of my house, my comfort zone. Um, I would, you know, I wouldn't have to do that. So all, I, all I'd have to do is put the plug in the jug, easy peasy. But unfortunately, like my mind pops that plug right out. You know, it just pops it right out and, and I'm always back to the races again. And, and what this talks about um, on page 23, it says, Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. So, towards the end of my drinking, I had a lot of pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. A lot. And, and, I, and in the back of my mind somewhere, I got to a point where I knew every time I was going to drink, I was going to end up in places I wasn't supposed to be, and I was going to end up with people that I wasn't supposed to be with. And it, it was a really horrible life. I wanted to absolutely end my life, but I was so terrified to do it that once in a while I would get myself just so drunk that I would drive around the inner city of Rochester hoping against hope that somebody would get so ticked off with me that they would shoot me in the head. That's how I felt when I drank. So if I knew, if I fully knew and was mentally aware of that's how I felt when I drank, it wouldn't make sense that I would choose to pick up a drink because it's my friend's birthday. It wouldn't make sense for me to choose to pick up a drink because it's a nice day and we're on a boat. It wouldn't make sense. It wouldn't make sense in the havoc that all the consequences that happened to me happen, I would choose to pick up that drink. You know, I hear people in the room say, I chose not to drink today. And again, if I could choose not to drink, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you five and a half hours away from my home while driving in a snowstorm to get here to talk. I just wouldn't. You know, I, I've lost the power of choice and drink. And it became extremely, extremely um, strengthened when I hit 16 years sober. As I was sitting around 16 years sober, I had done the steps, I had, I had gone through this book, I had had a spiritual awakening, I was working with sponsees, I was, you know, doing service in and outside my home group, I was, I was doing all the things, you know. If you saw me in Alcoholics Anonymous, I looked like a great alcoholic. I was doing all the things. But if you saw me outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, there was a very, very different person. I wasn't doing any of the things. I wasn't doing the prayer. I wasn't doing the meditation. I wasn't living this thing to the best of my ability. I wasn't um, being loving, tolerant, and grateful. Like I wasn't, I was lying to my, my employers. 
I was lying to my family. I wasn't there for anybody. I would literally go home and just, you know, leave my husband alone with our two very young, crazy children and just go and be like, I'm done and go to bed. I wasn't there for the people in my life. And sure enough, at 16 years sober, our book talks about, you know, this practical idea comes to all of us that, you know, after this long period of sobriety, then we're safe to drink again. You know, and, and what happened to me is I started to get sicker and sicker, and it doesn't start, that mental obsession doesn't start with the thought of a drink. The mental obsession starts with the thought of, you know, my house isn't as nice as I want it to be. It's not as nice as their house. That's what house started with me. Um, you know, irritable, restless, and discontented. You know, I wasn't content with anything in my life. My house wasn't good enough. It wasn't the right floor plan. I, you know, I wanted new appliances. It started off really small. Things that I don't even think about at all. Like, I wouldn't think, oh, I want a new refrigerator. I must have a spiritual illness. You know, I, at all. Like, I, I was just like, do, do, do. And, and, and regularly, I would, I would look at what you had, and I thought that if I had that, then I would feel better. If I had their house, I would feel better. If I had children that behaved like their children, then I would feel better. If I, whatever. And that started to happen to me, because I wasn't doing any of this stuff that the big book tells us to do in 10, 11, and 12. And, and all I was really doing was the first step and, and 12th stepping. And what happens after a while is I start thinking that I'm powerless over alcohol. I start thinking, you know what? I got 16 years. I'd never go back out and drink again because then what would everybody think of me? And I'd start thinking these things. And I didn't think about drinking still. I just didn't think I really needed Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember that last few months that like I was really just down in the dumps and before COVID hit, um, I remember sitting at meetings and people would be like, I'm so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous, you know? And I literally wanted to vomit. Like it just, it, it drove me nuts. You know, it was just like, ugh, like just how is it that I've been here for 16 years and I can't feel the gratitude for this thing? I hate being sober. And then my story happens is, on my actual 16-year anniversary, the world closed. The world closed. You know, COVID happened, and it was my anniversary, and, and we were going to go off to a convention that day, and we got a phone call that the convention was not happening, and that we had to go quarantine. And so in the next two months, I was, had not built a relationship with God. I would not been spiritually fit. I couldn't stand my children. I really wanted a divorce and move to California and just live on a beach in the warm weather and drink my, like, just drink my life away. Because eventually the, the wanting a new house and all of that led to finally, like, I just don't like this life anymore and I don't care and I don't want to live it. And if I'm so miserable sober, why not? Why not? And I was by myself, and I remember um, working from home, trying to be a mom, trying to be a teacher, trying to be all the things that you have to be when you're home alone with kids during COVID. 
And I remember going up to my room and I remember just crying my eyes out and thinking, I am completely alone in this life because my relationship with any sort of higher power is completely gone. I'm done. I'm so miserable. And I, it's just a matter of time. And there was a point where like, I, I got to it so bad, this, this mental obsession was so bad inside of me that I started handing my husband this the isopropyl alcohol that we had for some science experiments and stuff like that for the kids. I was like, you need to hide this. Like I used to be able to go to concerts. I used to be able to go to bars. I never thought about alcohol anymore once I worked the 12 steps. And all of a sudden, I can't even have isopropyl alcohol in my, in my house. Hand sanitizer, get the hand sanitizer. I had like walked around with a Tupperware with some hot water and soap and, and paper towels because I couldn't have hand sanitizer in my, in my, in my car. Every once in a while, I'd sit there with it right up to my mouth, just ready to, to stick my tongue out and taste it again. So I had to get the hand sanitizer away. And it talks about the type of stuff that we're free from the thoughts of alcohol, that we're neutral, and that had gone. That was gone. I couldn't be around alcohol. I, was, I felt unsafe. And so what happened, because I'm standing here before you today, and I never picked up a drink, and, and I honestly got to a point thinking that I would never be able to have a spiritual experience again unless I picked up. I need to have the bottom that alcohol is going to bring me to have the spiritual experience that I had when I first came, when I first came in and worked the steps. And, uh, and what happened is, I, like, like I said, Ryan was out working. He was, uh, he was important to go work, whatever they were called, I forgot. Um, but he was in, he had to go work and uh, he would come home from work and as soon as he would walk in the door I'd be like I'm done and go up to the room and just I'm done I quit for the day and uh, and then one weekend I was up in the room quit for the day and and he came running up I think you were running I felt like you were running my story is you were running um, <laughs> and he came running up because Zoom was going on. And he was coming up with the, the computer, and you're like, he's like, you gotta listen to this, you gotta listen to this. He's like, you have to hear this. I was like, oh, whatever, I hate AA meetings, I hate Zoom, but whatever, fine. And he, he puts this woman on, and she's speaking, and she's talking about how she felt exactly like I did in double-digit years of sobriety. And not only was she talking about how miserable she was in those double-digit years, but she was talking excitedly about Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was talking excitedly about the big book, and she was talking excitedly about sobriety. And I knew that she had experienced, like the way she was talking, I knew that she 100% experienced the feelings and thoughts that I had inside of me, but never drank. And she found the solution to be excited about this stuff again. And I was intrigued. I wanted what she had. And so at the end of her talking, she talked about her, what her home group was. And it was on Zoom. Wasn't everything on Zoom, you know, unless you were like, you know, around a fire or something. Um, so we were, you know, we, it was on Zoom. And so that, that Tuesday, 
you know, I was like, I want to go to this meeting. It was a big book study. It was a line by line big book study. And what they did there was they didn't read the whole big book or a chapter and, and talk about their experience. What they did was they read a page and they would talk about what the founder's directions were in the book. And I went there on Tuesday and they were um, at the, the prayer, the resentment prayer in the fourth step. Um, where we, we asked God to keep us from being angry, and, and we were there, and and uh, now I had sponsees. I had a lot of sponsees, and even though I wasn't doing what I needed to do outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a big book sponsor. So I have been in this thing inside and out ever since I got sober, and I had read every page, and I felt like I had dissected everything, and I didn't think you could teach me a darn thing about anything that was in this book. And when we went to that meeting, they were talking about the fourth step, and I looked at Ryan and I was like, what book are they reading? What are they reading? Like, what is going on? And then something crazy happened. I had a thought in my head that maybe, just maybe, I didn't know everything I thought I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I continued to go there every Tuesday night, and I started to love it, and I started to yearn for the, for the information that was in here, and I started to yearn for what they had, and, and the excitement, and the passion that they had for Alcoholics Anonymous, and the big book, and, and I really yearned for it. And so I started to ask around in that meeting if they had anybody who could work with people, and my ego so big that I felt like that woman who's, who's a pretty big speaker in AA had to be my sponsor because that's how damaged I was. <laughs> and, uh, and when I reached out, they gave me the name of some unknown person, and I was like, I guess I'll call her. And, and as soon as I called her, it was like I talked to, to somebody who was me but recovered. <laughs> and, uh, and they knew, like, within five, ten minutes, I knew she knew my heart, I knew she knew my soul, I knew that this was the woman I needed to be talking to. And so she started taking me through those steps again, and, and, and what I realized, I had gotten so far away from that first step. I got so far away from believing that I was powerless over alcohol. I got to a point where I really believed I had a choice if I were to pick up the drink or not. And what I learned is, still today, no matter how much I can remember about my consequences, no matter how much I can remember about how bad it was, it's never going to be enough. I'm never going to be able to remember that nine out of ten times to keep me away from that. And so when I finally was able to really, really, really understand how bad it was, how bad that I, like, how, how powerless I really, really, really was. At 16 years sober, that's a really weird place to be, just really understanding how powerless I was for the first time. You know, I went with a vigor to, to build this relationship with a higher power. I just, I was like, give me everything. I want it all. You know, um, so then... You know, I, I had this experience, and, and, and we went over to the third step on page 60. 
And this was another one where, you know, most of the time when I went through the third step with my sponsor the first time, it really was like, I didn't really understand what it was saying, you know, and, and I was like, oh, okay, I'll say this prayer, sure, whatever, let's keep it moving. And, and what she said is, you know, really, this is at this moment in my sobriety, it was a decision to continue to move on with the steps. It was a decision to go towards the spiritual life instead of sitting and blotting out the hopelessness of mine you know, drinking life. And um, and that's what I thought the third step was. And so and, and when I did the fourth step and the fifth step, I was able to kind of see this actor that I played that the book talks about, but I never really fully understood all of this. I didn't get it. You know, I honestly, I honestly, it tells you that you're selfish and self-seeking and that's the root of our problems. And I honestly, 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 Swear to God that I believed that that was me when I drank and before I finished the 12 steps. But once I did the 12th step and had a spiritual awakening, like I was just done with selfishness and self-centeredness. And like that was never me ever again in my whole entire life. I, like, and I, I didn't understand people who were like, I need to do the third step every day. And I'm like, you're... I'm sorry for you, that's a miserable way to live, you know, and that's what, like, I just didn't think I was ever going to be selfish or self-centered again, I thought it was gone, and, um, and that's how I took people through that third step, you know, I, I just took them through like that, boy, when she took me through that, when I've heard some other speakers talk about this third step, it has blown my mind, do you know, I'm selfish almost every minute of every day. I didn't. Um, I I couldn't see it. You know, like I there were small things, just so small, tiny, minute things. Like I could see it if you know, like you know, Ryan and I are talking about where we want to go for dinner, and he says I don't want to go here, and I want to go there, and he doesn't want to go where I am, but I manipulate the whole situation so we can go where I want to go. Like I can see my selfishness there. But there's so many other tiny little places that I just can't see it, you know? Um, and so, you know, we went through this first, this third step, and, it, and like, it just came alive to me. It says, um, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we are almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. What? Like, I, and that was the thing is, like, I think being selfish and self-centered, like, no, like, I'm doing this for your good. I'm doing this for the good of my children. I'm doing this for the good of my family. You know, how can you tell me I'm being selfish and self-centered when, you know, I'm going to the school because my daughter has ADHD and the teachers aren't dealing with it properly, and I'm on the phone with the teachers, and I'm on the phone with the learning people, and I'm on the phone with the doctors, and nobody's dealing with it properly, and nobody will listen to me. How are you telling me that I'm selfish? I mean, you missed the part where I'm like really manipulating, and that I'm like getting very angry with them, and I'm using naughty language, and, and all of these things, because they're not listening to me. And missing the part that I haven't prayed about it, I haven't even asked, you know, how I should deal with this with God. You know, like, I'm just like, no, it has to work out my way, and if it works out my way, then everything's going to work out 
great, and doesn't everybody see that if they do it my way, my daughter will get a better education and their lives will be so much better for it. And that's how my brain is working, but I don't even know that's what's going on. You know, and, and so with these good intentions that I want everybody to be happy and I think I know what's the best for you, I pick up this toolkit of self-will it talks about on 61. In trying to make these arrangements, our actor may sometimes be quite virtuous. He may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. All right, you know, my kids aren't doing what I want. I need them to, to do their chores. You know, I, I need them to do their chores. So we're gonna, you know, hey, we'll give you five bucks a week if you're doing this chore. It's not even that, like, I, I personally think it's worth a dollar a week, but, you know, we'll give you five bucks. And they say, no, we don't want the five bucks. We don't, we don't really want to do the chore. And I'm like, so then I try and sweeten the deal a little bit. And they say, no, we don't want to do it. So then I'm here, I'm being kind, I'm being generous, I'm being loving. Oh, you can do it. You're the best vacuum cleaner there ever was. And um, on the other hand, you may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. So I try with the good. I really do. They won't, they won't do it. And I need to teach them responsibility because if I don't teach them responsibility, then I look like a bad mom to everybody else. And so I need him. And at this point, I need my son to do the vacuuming because now internally, I think I'm going to fail as a mom if he doesn't do the vacuuming. And I'm getting angry and I start screaming at him and I start yelling at him and I start telling him I'm gonna take away his Legos if he doesn't vacuum the back room. So that's my toolkit of self-will and I use it all the time. I am manipulative, I'm cunning, you know, I, I, I'm all of those things. It's a really stinky way to live. So I see myself in these pages. I see myself on page 60 to 63, and I realize not only did I come here to stop drinking alcohol, but this is a really horrible way to live my life. It is causing me misery. It is causing everybody around me confusion. Nobody really wants to be in my presence. You know, I am, I am you know, it talks about being a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and, and I am, you know, a Dr. Jekyll, and, and I, I look all nice and happy and try to get you to do things my way, but then when you don't, I turn into this monster. And people don't like it. And I don't like it. And I feel like crumb, I feel crummy. And so I ended up with this third step having another moment of realizing just how powerless I am over my selfishness and my self-centeredness. So not only did I want to do the fourth step and the fifth step because I needed a solution to this powerlessness of alcoholism, but I finally came to realize in the third step at 16 years sober that I was powerless over my selfishness and self-centeredness. I couldn't wish it away. My defects of character, abundant. My, my sponsor is, has rich. every time I sit down to do an inventory, even if it's just like one resentment, she still gives me like five like defects of character. 
And, and, I, and I came to find out that I'm powerless over getting rid of my defects of character. You know, she told me that I'm really um, rigid in my thinking. And she told me I'm punishing, and she told me that I'm a whole bunch of other things. And, um, and I, I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, all right, God, take away the rigidity. rigidity. And I walk on my day, and, you know, like, I think that what I need to do is keep on working on my defects of character. Like, okay, I'm not going to be rigid. Oh, you're talking to me. I'm not going to be rigid. I'm not going to be punished. I'm not going to do this. And that's also a miserable way to live. And our book says that we can't be rid of these things in, our, in and of ourselves. It says that we let God take them. You know, so I went through this fourth and fifth step and I found out a whole bunch of these uh, character defects. So real quick, on page 62, it says selfishness and self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. So each one of those defects of character, are they're, they're personal to me. They show Risa how I work. You know, my defects of character are much different than my husband's defects of character. You know, and my husband's are much different than my daughter's. And my sponsees have different ones than me. You know, and I see those in the fourth and fifth step. We sit down and we write the list and, and, and I go over with my sponsor and she's able to look at something that I can't see because she's not in it. And she's like, have you considered this, that, and the other? I was like, no, I never considered that I stepped on that person's toes. She's like, and she comes back and she says, these are some of the things that I saw in your, in your life that are holding you back. These are the things that I see that you use as tools. And it's okay that you have these defects of character because you never learned how to live a spiritual life. So these are tools that you picked on, up on the way to get where you are now. But guess what? We have a new road for you, and we have brand new shiny tools for you to use. You don't need these old rusty ones anymore. And with knowing that I had other tools that were on, you know, the side, they were there. I just had to pick them up. I became more willing to let my rusty garbage tools go. And in 6 and 7, I asked God to take those from me. And then the book tells us we don't work to get rid of them. So what happens? I'm, I'm, you know, I don't sit there and I'm like, okay, not be rigid, not be rigid, not be rigid. Don't talk to me because I don't want to be rigid. You know, I, I go on and I live my life. And there's times where something comes up and I think it should be black and white answer. And I think it should be my right way of doing it. And I recognize that. Because I, I, I recognize that, and I'm like, oh, this sounds like rigidity coming up. God, please remove that one from me. And then I take it easy. And I let God take it from me. And I act accordingly. Even though my brain might be still going a little bit, like, Ugh. But, like, I act accordingly. And what I notice is that I'm able to be more tolerant of others today. And it's... That was an old defect of character. It's, it's really gotten, it's gone a lot away since I've been practicing this. And so then I, it tells me I go out and make amends. 
You know, after six and seven, I, I have a list from four and five of all the people I've harmed. Not a full list. There's a lot of other people on that list. But I have that, that list. And, and, and my sponsor says, this is, this is not, you don't go out and make amends because you want to feel better. You go out to make amends to help others feel better and to show how God works in your life today. And that was, that you know, like, because I always was like, well, what if the amends goes wrong? What is, you know, what if they kick me out of their office? What if they yell at me? What if, and she's like, it's not about you, Risa. It's about making things right with them and to show and demonstrate what God has done for you. And so I go off and, you know, there's this, this line right, uh, right around the ninth step. And it um, says our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. And during three, four, and five, I realized that I never tried to fit myself to be of maximum. I, I never tried to fit myself at all. What I focused on was fitting you into what I needed you to be instead of the other way around. And so doing this ninth step was going through and trying to fit myself to be of maximum service to God and those about me. And in order to really make amends, I need to start practicing this way of life, you know? I can't go and be a jerk to my mom over and over and over and over again and then just show up on her doorstep and say, hey, I did a fifth step and I'm supposed to make amends to you, sorry, you know? I have to start demonstrating that, I'm, I, that when she says something I don't necessarily like, I have prayer, I can talk to my sponsor, I can tenth step it a little, I can get out of myself, I can see how it's not really about me, and I can go to her and be loving and, and helpful and useful. And when I continue to do those things, when I show up on her doorstep and I say, Mom, I, I'd like to talk to you, I need to make some stuff right with you. She actually believes me. She trusts it. With my mom, so, so one of the, the living amends um, that I, I do is, is with my mom. And, uh, and every once in a while, I, I sat down with her and I made like a full out, you know, knee to knee amends process. But every once in a while, I check in with her every few months or a year and I say, hey, am I still holding up my end of the deal? things happen and, and I get cranky and I get this and I get that and, and I want to make sure that I'm still holding up my end of the deal for that ninth step and I continue to clean things up with her when I don't you know I continue to clean up things with my husband I make amends to my children my children are 8 and 11 I sit down with them and, and I'm you know, after I screamed at my, my son because he wouldn't do the vacuuming that I needed him to do, and I was screaming at him like an absolute lunatic, and he got a little scared of mommy and ran up to his room, and I feel absolutely horrible about what I had just done. You know, I go, I pray, I meditate. Sometimes I do it that day if he's in the right mood, or I wait for him to be ready for it. And I go and I say, hey, Max, dude, I was really wrong when I talked to you. 
how can I make that right for you? Then he tells me that I have to take him out somewhere that and spend like $70 on something. And I'm like, well, let's back it up a little bit. But I mean, I, I do that. I'm not above my children. I'm not above making amends to them. I'm not above making amends to anybody. I should be doing it to anybody that I've stepped on their toes, you know? And so the book tells us in those promises, in the ninth step promises, that when I've gotten here, I've recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. And all that really means is that I no longer am thinking about alcohol anymore and I'm no longer putting it in my body. That's all. The book never tells us exactly how to stop drinking, but it gives us a life in which a drink is not even needed. I don't need a drink anymore because I have a solution to, to living life in sobriety today. I enjoy sobriety today. It is amazing. It is absolutely amazing. So I've recovered. I always thought the spiritual experience or spiritual awakening, you didn't get to the 12th step, but I've learned that at ninth step is when I've become spiritually awakened. The 10th step is where I have to start being spiritually alert. You know, the 10th and 11th step, I always thought were just like um, extra credit. You know, I go, to, I go to meetings and, you know, on the 10th month or the 11th month, uh, the 10th step was being talked about or the 11th step was talked about and we'd read it out of the 12 and 12 and, and everybody in the room, including myself, would be like, I'm not very good at this one. But when I'm feeling yucky, I talk to my sponsor and I might do a really big inventory. And that's the way I did it. I didn't do 10, I didn't do 11, and when I would find myself in a deep pit of self-misery, self-sabotage, all of that stuff, I would go and I'd do a, another fourth set, you know? And that's how I thought it worked. And what I found out is 10 and 11 are part of the 12-step program not extra credit and so i have to do those on a daily basis and i'm spiritually alert today so that means that regularly i have to keep on watch i have to watch my thinking you know now i get busy and i'm like what to do and i get self-will and, and totally just kind of you know force my way through life a lot of times a lot of times you know but there are times where i've tried to to provide myself with discipline you know, um, when I wash my hands, washing your hands became really popular during COVID. And so, like, I wash my hands, and plus I'm in a, a medical, um, in healthcare, um, so I wash my hands a lot. And so when I wash my hands, and I need to do it for that length of time, I take a moment, I'm like, all right, am I being selfish today, right now? How am I doing right now? Am I fearful? Am I you know, nervous about anything? Do I feel disturbed about anything? You know, and when I start to realize I am, the book gives me specific directions. It says, watch for these things when they crop up. We ask God to remove them at once. You know, it, we don't ask God after I talk to my sponsor. We don't ask God when I get a chance when I'm in the car. We ask God at once to remove this from me. And then I talk to somebody, you know? And then after that, 
if I have to make an amends, if I have to clean something up, I do that. And then I give my thought to others. How can I help you? One of the things I heard somebody say is that, you know, that, that direction to go think about others is, you know, if, I, if, if, if somebody were to say to me, you know, uh, say there was an elephant in the middle of the room, and somebody was to say to me, don't think about that elephant in the middle of the room, it's the only thing I'm thinking about. I can't stop thinking about the elephant in the room. If I want a drink and someone says, stop thinking about a drink, I just can't do it. Like, I keep thinking about the drink. But if you give me something else to think about, then my mind can go towards that. And so I'm not trying to stop myself from doing anything, but I'm trying to encourage myself to think about other people. And so, I, so, so that usually will combat the situation. You know? And then we have the 11th step. I do that in the morning, I do it at night, and I do it during the day. You know, at night, I think of it as like a job interview. Like, like, how did I do my job today? How, you know, God, did I, did I show up the way you needed me to show up? Where, where could I work done? What could I have done better? What could I have, you know, done well? And then at the bottom, you know, like, at, I always, and I do mine written. It just works for me better. I know that the book doesn't say you have to do it written or not. Just for me, I do it written. And, and, and I say, um, it says uh, actions for the day. For, for tomorrow, things, do I need to clean up something? Do I need to call somebody? Should I have checked in somewhere? And so the 11th step then has a morning meditation. I think about my plans for the day. I have a list from the night before. I don't have to get crazy. I just sit there and I think about the, you know, what was on my list? In the fourth step in the fear inventory, it says we're in the world to play the role that he assigns. That's also something I bring into the morning. What are the roles that I have today? I'm a mother, I'm, gonna, I'm a wife, I'm a student, I'm a sponsor, I'm a sponsee, I'm a mother. And I just take a few minutes to think of how God would want me to show up in those roles. And it doesn't take very long. And I go on with my day. And, and then when I feel a little hectic or I... I'm up to a decision and I don't know what to do, if I should go left or right, if it's agitating me, I just ask God to help. I get quiet. And I, that was another misunderstanding I had is, oh, it says we pause when agitated or doubtful and we ask God for, for help. And I thought after that I was supposed to sit there and write down a list of pros and cons and I was still supposed to like figure it out and move my little fingers around the situation and get it to be Reese's way, it tells us to relax and just keep it moving. We don't have to figure it out. The answers will come if our own house is in order. And then that 12th step. I get to give this thing away daily, daily. My girls call me all the time. You know, I, I give this thing away and if I'm giving this thing away, I need to be sure that I am practicing it. I need to be sure that I'm showing up for the, for the people who, you know, I like to pretend that I am in a bright red hat and shirt that just screams, you know, uh, God's servant, God's, you know, agent. 
And if I'm walking out along in public in this bright red thing that says God's agent, I hope that I'm showing up as the way that he would want me to. So thank you very much for having me come out. Uh, it was wonderful, and I just I, I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm excited. I'm passionate about it. And I am absolutely and utterly free today of the obsession to drink. Thank you.